0: Tea culture. In Britain, they've been enjoying tea since around 1823. And in India, they've been enjoying tea since around 700 BC. And according to ancient Chinese legend, the history of tea began in 2737 BC, when a tea leaf blew unexpectedly off of a wild tea tree and it landed into the pot of Emperor Shennong, Nong, according to their legend. Now, as Canadians, we are very, very late to the tea party, and um, according to the uh, tea-drinking Jedi at tea the average Canadian drinks 254 cups of tea a year, and if that seems unbelievably low to you, you need to submit your numbers to them, and uh, get those numbers accurate. When you're drinking tea, and I'm not much of a tea drinker at all, so I, I have to tread softly as I talk about this, but, When you drink tea, people drink it different ways. Some people just gently dip the the tea bag into the water a couple times, you know, generously, like for a whole 1.5 seconds before putting it into the saucer. Um, I'm not sure why they do it that way. Perhaps because they don't want to spoil the heavenly taste of hot water. Uh, (laughs) So that could be why they do that. And then other people steep the tea when I drink tea, which isn't often, but when I do, I like to leave the bag in there until you can't see the bottom of the cup. Because I figure if I'm going to go to the trouble of drinking a uh, miniature bag of yard waste that I allow to steep into hot water, I may as well go the whole distance. Now, we have been doing a series of, on wisdom literature through Proverbs. And to have the scriptures do their deep work, it's like being steeped in the scripture. For Proverbs to do their deep work in our hearts and our lives, they can't be absorbed by just kind of dipping our toe in, in 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 the scripture quickly and moving on with our lives it 's actually the way wisdom literature, and all scripture really uh, does its work into our our hearts and our minds is by being steeped in it and so as we um, st- steep in the goodness of god 's word um, we revisit it and we meditate on it, and we are in that mode, willing to have our motives, you know, revealed by it. We, as you steepen it, you consider how Christ fulfilled it, how Christ personified it, how Christ made use of it, exemplified it. And then prayerfully and thoughtfully, we then go about our lives trusting that the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit will guide us in it. This is how we um, enjoy the nourishment of not only the Proverbs, but of all scripture. And so... (laughs) And so when we uh, look at this wisdom literature, today our text is Proverbs chapter 12. I'm gonna read the first three verses. But what we are going to understand as we work through Proverbs, and as you read through Proverbs um, on your own, that we don't become wise merely by reading the scripture. We become wise by letting the scripture read us. And so in order for that to happen, you have to steepen it. Um, as scripture, meditation, and prayer become a part of your life, godly wisdom and insight steeps into your heart and begins to guide your life. Proverbs chapter 12, the first three verses. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. This is God's word. Now, The Word of God is continually calling us to obedience and congruence of God's ways. And if you've joined us this morning exploring Christian faith or you're new to the scriptures, here's what you need to know about Christian obedience. Uh, Very briefly, uh, we don't obey so that God will accept us. We obey because united to Christ, God has already accepted us. And we very much want to be imitators of the one who saved us in grace. So for those of you who are new believers or exploring the scriptures for the first time, that's very, very important uh, to understand that ultimately, for the one who has been saved by God's grace, when God's word says to us, live like this, a heart's response more and more over time is, yes, I want this. And so we're gonna look at this text, we're gonna break it down verse by verse because Proverbs proper, is constructed in such a way that there's parallelism in every sentence. You can read from chapters 10 through to 31, and you're gonna find parallelism in every sentence. They're modifying each other, they're expanding on each other, they are intentionally contrasting each other, and you're supposed to just steep in it and think about your life, think about areas of your life where they apply. And then as life changes, you can continually go to this word which is alive and active and it will read you in a new way. So it's the wisdom is endless. We're gonna look at these three statements and um, my goal really this morning is to just sort of get you started, but you could be uh, meditating on, on this all week long. So the first verse says, to love correction is wise and to hate correction is stupid. And so the question we wanna ask is, how can I be wise and how do I have the capacity to be stupid? And maybe you're thinking, I could save a lot of time this morning by just moving right on from this because you're not stupid, because you're educated, you're intelligent, Maybe you have letters after your name. Maybe some, some of you are thinking to yourself, I am book smart. Some of you, I'm street smart. I got street smarts, book smarts, street smarts, both smarts. Uh, maybe this morning uh, you're very successful in life in, very, in many, many ways. Maybe you've accrued a lot of wealth. And so this line that says, he who hates correction is stupid, is tempting to just move right on from. But I want to encourage you. Let's look very deeply at what this means to be stupid. That word stupid is only used twice in Proverbs here and again in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse two. And in Proverbs 30 verse two, it says, surely I'm too stupid to be human. Should teach us something. And I lack understanding and I've not learned wisdom and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. What does it mean to be stupid? What is this text inviting us to consider? Well, it doesn't mean to be unintelligent and it doesn't mean to simply lack knowledge. Though of course I can mean those things. The Hebrew word for stupid is ba'ar. And the ba'ar means to be brutish or animal-like. It means you're beast boy. It means you're led through life instinctively, on autopilot, without even thinking about it, by your deepest instincts and appetites and desires. And so, because this is uh, the picture that we're given, we realize this is actually a picture of not... Thoughtfully moving through life, but rather just instinctively going through it. I was watching One Earth with Nigel. It's this uh, nature series on Netflix. And there was um, this, these bison that were being attacked by this predator, this large cat. I forget what kind it was. And as the Predator was, were approaching the bison, they tried to separate the pack and they successfully did it. And one tiny little small bison, tiny little small, the size of a Honda Civic, but this tiny little small bison got separated from the pack and the Predators were converging on the bison. And all of a sudden the camera pans out and there's the little bison and there's the Predator and then there is this monstrous bison. And Nigel and I say, oh man, the Predator is about to get it. Because here comes Mama Bison or Papa Bison. And that huge bison comes in and converges and you're not going to believe what it did. It got those horns down and it flipped the little bison over so that it could escape. And the predator ate the little bison. And that's the end of the story. And you say, that's so disheartening. That's terrible. That's horrible. That's nature though. You see, this is what it means to be brutish. This is what it means to be animal-like. This is what it means in the Proverbs chapter 12 sense of being stupid. It's saying, what do I need to do to survive? And that's what I'm gonna do. The animal kingdom doesn't operate on the basis of good or bad or justice or mercy or morality. It's not concerned, you know, you can't fault the bison for doing what the bison did, because bison's gonna bison. That's what (laughs) bisons do. And so what the text is inviting us to consider is now hold on a second. Where in my life am I, willing, am I brutish? In what aspects of my life am I just animal-like where I feel threatened, I'll trample on anything. I'll trample on anybody. What could it look like for me to be led by my appetite or just led by my instincts in a way that is contrary to the word of God? It's sort of inviting this. So Solomon uses this animal imagery by saying that to hate correction is to be brutish. It's to be animal-like, it's to be stupid. He's saying that to lose the wonder in the worship of God and to relate to any one area of your life like your God is to relate to life like a beast. So the wise person wants what's right and the stupid person thinks that whatever they instinctively do is right. And so is there anything more offensive in the year 2020 than to challenge a whole congregation of people To think that it's possible that the way you think about something or do something could be wrong. The Word of God causes us to stop and think about this. Are there desires that we have? You know, we're so offended to be told that the Word of God could offend us and say that's wrong. The way you're thinking about that or relating to that is wrong. Are there... Why do we have that reaction? Are there desires that we have, drives that we have, instincts that we have, that are so closely tied to our identity that we couldn't possibly be told they were wrong? Um, Do we have instincts and desires and drives in our lives that have, we've propped up on the throne and, and made ultimate. That if, if the word of God asked us to change the way that we thought about those things or dethrone those things or even turn from those things, would we react like an animal uh, or would we be wise? And so it says that to hate correction is, is stupid. So let's think about this word hate. What does it look like to hate correction? The wise person loves it. They embrace it. They they grow wiser because of it. But the stupid person, the brutish person, hates it. What does it mean to hate? For this, I'm going to give you another animal example. And I know I'm going to get letters about this, but I have to do it anyways because I think it's a good image. If you think about a cat, and I'm so sorry, cat people. Cats are wonderful. But if you think about a cat, cats, when they get angry, sure, they can claw your eyes out. But there's an, but, but that's not just – that's not the, uh, what, what – the form of hatred looks like to hate correction. It actually looks like another thing cats do. Incredible indifference. You can walk into a room and and a cat can be like, you're here, you're not here, I don't care. You pick me up, you don't pick me up, I don't care. You put put, put something on the floor for me to enjoy, you don't, I don't care. I'm just living my life, I'm doing my thing. You come home at two o'clock or three o'clock or five o'clock or you don't come home, I don't care. That's the image of to hate correction. It's, listen, I am just going about my life. Hate in the Hebrew sense is indifference. That's why there's other texts that say, if you don't discipline the child, you hate the child. And it means there's just this indifference for um, the development of the child. So it's not, hatred is not always explosive. Hatred can also be uh, indifferent. And so this text provokes us here. Can I trust God's word to faithfully guide me in how I will relate, relate to all my desires? Or am I going to be beast-like beast and, and led through, uh, through life on a leash by my desires? So let's move on to the, ne- the, the next line. The next line says, A good person obtains favor from the Lord, but he, who, but he condemns those who devise wicked schemes. So I think the question that I want us to ask here this morning is, What does it mean to be good? And how do I have the capacity to be wicked? If good people get favor, and the wicked people are uh, condemned, what does that mean? What can that look like? So I think uh, uh, the first question we want to consider is, whose standard of good, right? <laughs> have you ever had somebody recommend, recommend a movie, and they say, oh my goodness, you gotta watch this, it's so good. And you watch it, and you're like, it's not so good. Oh, you gotta eat out at this restaurant, it's so good. You go there, and you're like, meh. Whose standard of good? If the good person gets favor from the Lord, what is this standard? Uh, You know, if you are a person, we've got a number of people in our congregation who uh, do interior design, interior work, construction, um, designing uh, kitchens, working with wood, cabinetry. You know, there is a standard of measurement on your, there's a standard of measurement on your uh, tape measure. And if you just do eyeball construction, that's going to be a problem. There is a divine standard for good. It's not your version, my version, the person down the street's version. Society gets together in a democratic system and say, "Well, in in a democracy, the majority view rules." But the majority view doesn't mean that that's necessarily true or right or good. It just means the majority of people think this particular way. So the, you know, the benefit of a de- de- democratic society is we all get a voice. Uh, the limitation of a democratic society is just because we all. Um, use our voice doesn't mean that constitutes divine truth. So this text says, now hold on a second, whose standard of good here? And it is, of course, the divine standard. Hebrew commentators will tell you that here in this text, because good is contrasted from wicked, the idea of good is perfect purity. So the standard of good is the one who gets the favor of the Lord is the person of perfect purity. Not their best shot at it, perfect thought, Word, deed, perpetually, perfect purity. That's who gets the favor of God. Now, that's a problem for you and for me because we don't live that way. If I was to ask you this week, how many of you raise your hand if the last seven days your life demonstrated in thought, word, and deed, perfect purity, perfect love? If, if over the last seven days I was to stand you next to Jesus, how many of you would say to me, there would be no visible difference between the life I lived the last seven days and the life of Jesus? None of, next week doesn't look good either for us. And so this is the standard of good. Now think about it. You say, I don't know, Paul. maybe you're taking this too far and you're just being um, dramatic uh, because you're a dramatic person. Think about how Jesus talked about good. The Pharisees, who did not believe that Jesus was God, said to him, good teacher. And what does Jesus say? This is Luke 18, by the way. Jesus says to them, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. And it was Jesus' way of saying, I have been making it very clear that I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And since the only one who's good is God, and you don't think I'm God, don't call me good. That's how Jesus used the word good. There's a divine standard of goodness. So of course, at first, we'd say, this is a problem. For those of you, again, if you've joined us this morning, you're exploring faith or you're new to faith, on the surface, it seems like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, the way to get God's favor is to be good and then God accepts you. Well, the truth is this text is provoking us to see that we're not good, to see that we need the saving mercy of a God who is good. Right in the in the ancient context of Proverbs before Christ, it was, turn to the saving merciful God who is good. On this side of the cross, it's look at the one Jesus Christ who was perfectly good for us, who uh, has done in the gospel what was required by God's law so that this Jesus who obtained favor, who has given his righteous record to you by grace, you and I are now united to the one who is perfectly good and we are now filled and indwelled by the spirit so that we can now very intentionally desire to imitate the one who was good. We go out this week, um, not from guilt, but from gratitude, very intentionally desiring to emulate and resemble the one who is good. The text says that's what, the, the, that, that's what good is. But then it goes on to say, God condemns those who devise wicked schemes. And again, maybe you're like, let's move on. I don't have any wicked schemes. Uh, I don't have a lair. Um, I'm not an evil person. I'm not scheming to rule the people of matrosity. This sounds like a cartoon supervillain, Wicked schemes. But what is a scheme? A scheme is a system or a plan through which you intentionally do something. All of us have plans and patterns through which we go about life. All of us have plans and patterns through which we live life in a certain way. Even if you say, no, no, I'm a free spirit. I have no plan. That's also a plan. It's not a great plan, but it's still a scheme. It's still a pattern. It's still a way of approaching life. And so what the text is saying, provoking us to question is, if everybody has an approach, what's a wicked approach? Well, the ultimate wicked scheme, the ultimate wicked approach to life, the one that in the end God is going to condemn has been around since Genesis three, right? Reject God, set up your life like there's no God, set up your life like your God, And that's the wicked scheme. None of us have evil layers, but all of us sin. And when we sin, that is a momentary wicked scheme making a choice like there's no God. It is in that moment regarding something like there is no divine standard. Genesis 3, the original sin, was looking at something that God said would lead to death and then saying, I'll decide what's good. Proverbs 12, the brutish animalistic person, sets up their life with patterns in ways that the word of God says that's gonna lead to death and their response is, I'll decide what's good. It's the same problem of Genesis three revisited again. It is the original sin rearing its ugly head. And so the wisest thing that you and I can do is desire the loving correction of God and imitate the one who saved us in grace. And the most beast-like thing we can do is reject the correction of God and turn from the one who saved us in grace. And so may God show us the dark, beast-like corners of our hearts that drive us to set up our life, drive us to set up patterns, drive us to relate to things like God doesn't exist. A good person obtains favor from the Lord, and Jesus Christ is the one who was good. We are united to the one who was good. He lived the perfectly good life that we ought to be living, but we're not. He died an atoning death, to take away our sin, and he rose on the third day, which means that united to him by grace, we are now empowered by the spirit to imitate him who is good. This is, of course, the goal of our lives, not from guilt, but from gratitude, which leads to the final thing, the final uh, statement in verse three. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. Well, if wickedness will not establish your life, how can we live an immovable life these are the two things that we are given these two contrasting images not established that's your choice, your option or never be moved that's your option and throughout scripture this aspect of never being moved and you know the root of the righteous it's the image of a tree this metaphor of this stable tree that's grounded and isn't going anywhere and so it's important to note that you know the text is not saying that if you reject god Um, You can't have prosperity or um, security temporarily. What the text is saying is those who reject God have no prosperity and have no security eternally. This text is encouraging us to think about the long game. Will your life in the end uh, not be established or will it be immovable? Again, Solomon wrote this. He called himself the Koheleth in the book of Ecclesiastes. Koheleth in the Hebrew means... Uh, the, the philosophic teacher so this is a this is a deep philosophical long game question he's he's asking the question do you want your life established or or do you want it to be immovable and if life is very short by modern standards you know 71 years globally if life is very short then does it matter whether you're wise or foolish does it matter whether you're a poor or a millionaire if all there is is these you know 70 80 years we get on this life does it matter then whether you're generous or, or, you're, or, or you're not? I mean, you can parse these things out and think things like, yes, of course it matters because it benefits the people that follow us, and there's those arguments. But in an eternal sense, in a cosmic sense, if you believe that the world is 16 uh, billion years old, and um, as, as the scientists suggest, then in 16 billion more years, do all of these things that we're saying really matter now matter? The, Solomon dove deeply into that kind of thought. And when he dove deeply into it, it bothered him as he realized that in the end, the reward is the same, no matter what kind of life you live. In the end, the reward is death, if there is no God. So what this text is saying is, if you want to be established, if you want to have an immovable life, and then what, we want, then what you want to do is recognize the goodness of this God and live, as though, live in congruence with the wisdom of this God turn to this God, turn to the saving grace of this God. Christians, of course, are not immune from hardship, but the word of God guides us away from inviting hardship. And it also, the spirit of God strengthens us through hardship. So the wisdom literature and the wisdom of God's word guides us from inviting hardship because we're not giving in to our our animalistic, brutish, stupid impulses. But the spirit of God strengthens, strengthens us in hardship because... Of course, we live in a broken world and hardship can be brought in by forces that are outside of us. And so this gospel, it frees us to a life of of, uh, stability. It frees us from having our joy tethered to instability. The root of the righteous will never be moved. Jesus was righteous by nature. United to him, you are declared righteous by grace. And so this gospel promise is that your life is already established eternally And so steep in that, and God's grace will carry you through anything because your hope isn't riding on anything temporary. So that when God's word instructs you, challenges you, contradicts you, and says, live like this, may our hearts, arrested by grace, respond, I want this. The root of the righteous will never be moved. Let's pray.